0: Good morning and welcome to Midpoint Wednesday. I'm Shelley Reback, your host for WMNF's midweek mid-morning dose of news and public affairs with a local perspective. You are of course listening to WMNF 88.5 FM. Tampa Bay's only non-commercial independent FM radio brought to you by you because we are supported by our generous listeners and our volunteer radio activists like Jessica Green, who's running our soundboard today, and Barbara Fling, who will be answering your calls. We always welcome you to join our conversation with your questions and comments by calling 813-239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting us at 813-443-0885. Today's guest on Midpoint is Aaron Kimmerle. Erin is a local forensic anthropologist and executive director of the Institute of Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science and an associate professor of anthropology at the University of South Florida. She was awarded the 2020 AAAS Award for Scientific Freedom and Responsibility, and she co-hosts a new podcast, Signal 8, with local author and journalist Ben Montgomery. Erin Kimmerle has recently written a book. We Carry Their Bones The Search for Justice at the Dozier School for Boys published last year by HarperCollins and thanks so much for being with us on WMNF Fair and Welcome. Thank you. So, first give us a quick primer on what a forensic anthropologist does and what your background in this area has been. Not everyone's familiar with forensic anthropology.
1: Well, anthropology is a very broad field and forensics falls under what's called biological anthropology. So what we do is assist medical examiners and law enforcement whenever remains are found. And there's a question about the identity of the victim. Who's this person? What happened to them? Uh, what's you know, what's their injury? Something that uh, would suggest that it's a homicide versus um, a natural death or, or some other mechanism. Um, we will assist with locating clandestine graves so we got there in the field doing field work and then we do lab work um, everything from skeletal analysis to facial reconstructions.
0: Wow so um, what is your background in this like how do you learn how to analyze a skeleton Mm -hmm. for information?
1: Well I studied anthropology you know as an undergraduate Uh, I ended up going for a master's and PhD so I went all the way through in anthropology and it starts with Really that biological and, and some archaeological training, but where you're learning bones and skeletal anatomy and bone biology, that's the core of it. And then a lot of it <clears throat> comes from actual field work and casework and, and practice. So I've been practicing now for close to 20 years.
0: Wow. And you, you've had some very interesting background um, beyond just working with local law enforcement because, of course, you're here at USF. Um, but as I understand it, you collected and analyzed evidence from mass graves around the world, um, too, in connection with various United Nations or, or uh, uh, war crimes investigations from the International Criminal Court. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did.
1: I, I went to uh, Kosovo first. It was in 1999, right after the war had ended there uh, and then <clears throat> went back uh, a number of missions throughout the Balkans. Uh, we were working for the office of the prosecutor. And so they were uh, charging, had to say it with various war crimes and genocide. And so just like a murder investigation here, all that evidence has to be collected and presented at trial the difference, of course, is that in one grave there might be 140 victims, and right. so it really becomes the pattern. You're showing people are targeted because of who they are. Uh, that's you know a critical element in, in a genocide case. It's it's not just an individual's killed, but it's because of their religion or their politics or their ethnicity. There's something about their group identity that that makes them a target.
0: Wow. And, uh, that's, that's just fascinating to me. And, um, you've also, uh, helped identify and, and solved all kinds of crimes here, too, locally. And every time you're called in has got to be really interesting. I mean, each case has to be unique and, uh, I I can understand that that would be, you know, really stimulating. But what about the like gory, disgusting factor? Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) I guess you must get over that pretty quickly, huh?
1: I think I think so. I mean, on the one hand, yes. you know, once you take human anatomy, you're, it's, you know, you either love this and find it interesting or it's not for you. Um So in that regard, it's very much, you know, sort of science and, and biology and, and basics. But what I think, you, you know, it's the scary part, really. It's what people do to one another and, you know, that there's a lot of really violent crime and a lot of it's focused on women. And, you know, that's where putting this work into action, you know, feels like you're really contributing to that justice process
0: and for, um, you know, the families of the victims. What can, what can bones tell us? I mean, how can, I mean, I assume that like you find a skeleton and there's a break in bones, you know, you can analyze, uh, I imagine, you know, how that break occurred or, you know, um, we all watch these TV programs where there's a medical examiner saying, oh, it was a blunt instrument and it, you know, it was this shape and, and that type of thing. Is that really how it, is that really how you, you do that type of analysis?
1: It is very much. Yeah. We don't, we don't have a hologram like on TV. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always waiting for that to arrive, but, uh, Yeah, it's really looking at the bones and and understanding what's normal, what should it look like, uh, and then what's wrong with it. And in cases of fractures and breaks, what caused it? So, is it a blunt instrument, you know, a baseball bat, a hammer? Is it uh, something that happened after death? You know, if the if the body was buried or you know, there's an animal scavenging or things that can happen to the body. So that's a really key part of it. Is is what caused these fractures and is it an injury, and you know, if so, does that speak to what type of crime was actually committed?
0: And do you use other scientific methods uh, beyond just visually examining, you know, skeletons to try to find out what happened to a dead person?
1: Well, we use uh, chemical isotope analysis to try and help with identification when <clears throat> when what other is methods that? fail. So. Think of it like uh, you've heard you are what you eat mm-hmm. and elements from the water and the food that you eat end up in your body. And in your hair, your teeth, your bones, when these tissues are forming, uh, those elements stay there. So it's kind of a little timeline, if you will. And what, the, what it's reflecting is local water uh, and to some extent diet, and, and that can be more variable. But we use it to really ask this question. If someone is found dead here in Tampa were they born here? Did they live here their whole life or did they come from somewhere else? And so we're able to look at that and say in broad geographical regions, okay, this person was likely born in the Caribbean or you know, New York, New England. And so it just it becomes an investigative lead to, to oh. show where people may have come from.
0: So that would help with identifying who they are if, if law enforcement didn't know who they are.
1: Right. And it's actually being tied in with forensic genealogy now and DNA genealogy where you have a genealogist looking at different you know paths and the lineage and trying to um, figure out who the person is and so knowing okay well maybe it's that branch that's from you know upstate New York or New England or something then that that works really well with what they're doing
0: wow yeah, we did a show on uh, that forensic genealogy a, c- a couple of years ago now, I think, with um, the genealogy librarian from USF. What's his name, Drew? Drew, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was fascinating, too, um, because he talked a lot about how that's now being used to help solve cold cases, cold criminal cases, where, uh, you know, they find some DNA evidence and they're able to find a strain of, of, of people related to that DNA that will narrow down their, their normal investigative procedures to that area of people and that family strain. And it's a whole new world, I think, for crime solving, isn't it?
1: It is. It's really, you know, revolutionizing it. It's just expensive still. And so, and it's optional. So that's where you know, policy and the system become important because we need every agency to use it. And for them to do that, they need, you know, the, for it to be a priority and to
0: And isn't resources. there a, an enormous backlog in DNA analysis uh, around there the is. country too?
1: <laughs> yeah, it can take, in an active, you know, current investigation, it can take a year sometimes to get DNA results.
0: Wow, and there's a backlog of so many untested... I know rape kits and and things like that, where these are victims who are still living, um, not right. people who are you know dead. And uh, I imagine that you know questions of prioritizing which case gets handled is is also a big issue in law enforcement now. I mean, if you have that much of a backlog, you know right. whose case should you be working on right now?
1: Right, and that's and that is a. That's a challenge, too, because even when labs are doing the DNA testing and then they come back with a hit or a you know potential match or a, um, a co- we call it a CODIS hit, they have to have detectives assigned to the case and, and then go investigate it. And so that's where if agencies don't have that, and surprisingly most don't, then they just end up sitting back in the drawer again.
0: Wow. Well, let's turn our attention to the investigation that was um conducted in connection with the dozier school for boys um that's interesting too because obviously uh well well let me let me start with this how did it come about that that even became an investigation how did it come about that you were called in to assist on whatever happened at the dozier school for boys Right. Well,
1: it really started with uh, a group of men, the five men, who um, had been sent there as teenagers, as kids. And they found each other sort of online and and uh, ultimately came forward and asked the state to acknowledge the abuse that they had endured and to basically close what was called the White House. And, and at the time, the Doja school was still open. It only closed in 2011. And this was probably... In, um, 2005, 2006. And so <clears throat> that's what I think brought it into the, uh, everyone's sort of attention, into modern media attention. I say that because throughout the school's history, which was 111 years, there was constant investigations and constant media coverage, but it had faded away after, uh, in recent years. And Ben Montgomery was a local journalist who picked up on the story and started investigating it and in, like Most of us, I think, the initial reaction is, was this all true? Did all this happen? Like, what, you know, how do you explain this large institution right here in Florida? And how does it seem like no one knows what's going on? So he started doing articles investigating both the past and the present. And some of the families were coming forward and reaching out to him who had been searching for their brothers and their uncles for a lifetime. It wasn't that they just started, they had been searching. And I had the opportunity to meet Ben and and read some of his work. And it just struck me because that's the exact work that we do every day. It's, you know, the exact work we did in the Balkans. It's what we do with cold cases here. So we have the ability to do it, the tools, the technology. And the families were being told no by the state that it wasn't possible to do it.
0: Oh, and so, so they th- did. They know that there were bodies there. The families and they wanted to know were any of those bodies their family members? Is that was that the so the they, thrust of it? Yeah,
1: they knew that they knew that their brothers had gone there and died. and The school buried them in unmarked graves, and the school had set up in the nineteen nineties uh, thirty-one white crosses in a field that was really to commemorate. This burial ground. The crosses never were matched to specific individuals, and the school didn't really have records of, you know, who's buried there wow. or where, but what they could piece together from records, they said, okay, we have 31. And when the state, uh, they asked, it was then Governor Chris to do a statewide investigation, and he had FDLE do that, and they Basically said, okay, well, everything. Thirty-one crossers.
0: <laughs> <So, laughs> yeah. yeah, The records show thirty-one deaths and thirty-one crosses. Did they have names for those thirty-one people? They did. They had names and uh, and they
1: said that you know there's really nothing suspicious happened because they died of the flu or they died in a fire and um, you know it's hmm. just what what it was. But the families wanted more than that. They didn't believe that story, but they also wanted the remains back so they mm-hmm. could bury them, you know, next to their parents and, and in their family plots.
0: And so in order for that to happen, then the remains had to be identified to each individual family member.
1: That's correct.
0: Oh, okay. So I, I understand that there was a series of articles published in the Tampa Bay Times in 2009 uh, by Ben Montgomery and uh, Waveney Ann Moore. And it was up for, uh, named a Pulitzer finalist, I guess, in 2010, too. Um, and the school was still in operation at that point. It was yeah. yeah. So how did it come about that you were brought into to this when when the families were demanding that their the remains be identified so they could be brought back to the family plot or what have you? Um, who brought you into? To investigate this, how did that come yeah. about?
1: Well, really, no one brought us in. We, I just volunteered. Oh, and, really? Yeah, it was really Ovel Kraul was one of the sisters of the of a boy named um, George Owen Smith, and she had uh, come forward, and, and Ben had put together, a, a, you know, like a three minute documentary, like a video about her story, and it just felt very familiar, like the mothers and grandmothers that we work, you know, I worked with in. Um, in the Balkans, but also in Nigeria and Peru and different places, often when you have conflict like that, it's it's women that survive and ultimately look for justice and, and come back. So she, she reminded me a lot of that. And I just, you know, when the state is telling somebody that they don't, you know, there's nothing that can be done when you know that that's not true. It's, you know, that's where I thought... Let's help her and let's see if we can find out any information. So basically under the purview of an archaeology permit, I asked permission of the state, who was the landowner, uh, to go on their property to document this burial ground as we would any other historic cemetery. So there's certain protections for historic cemeteries and families have rights to access them. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. So initially it was really to see like, well, are the graves even here Mm -hmm. and how many are there?
0: And as I understand it, they were there. And in fact, there were more than 31. Is that right? That's
1: right. And that's what really (laughs) changed uh, the sort of dialogue because we estimated 50 burials and that now meant that we didn't know who they all were, right? And so, then it becomes this question of, well, are they all historic? Are they some somebody else? You know, it's becomes just an, a matter of a unmarked, yeah. unknown grave.
0: It's a mystery who who are these who are these buried skeletons? How did they get there? What happened to them? Right, and on state land in a state facility, maybe, or maybe they were, you know. Uh, Mafia hits that people just brought into that particular burial ground. I guess that those are the kinds of questions that it raises when there's more bodies than records have uh, information about, right?
1: Right, and especially in a in a cemetery in an institution like this, because it was essentially a prison. Right. It was. I mean, it was supposed to be a school, but it was a closed system an institution where children were sent there by a judge and and the grounds were secured right so i'm just saying it's not like a public cemetery where people in the community had access to it or could use it so it really lent itself to all these questions about what had
0: happened yeah like something something wicked this way comes over there and uh I understand that when you when you were able to do these excavations and you found these remains, you were able to determine that some of these remains of were of children, you know, that that they weren't even adults. They were young boys um, and some su- suffered suffered sexual abuse, starvation, um, you know, lack of medical attention to various conditions or wounds. Um, how were you able to determine that that kind of abuse had occurred um, from the remains that you found?
1: Well, a lot of the initial research was archival and background. So really finding and then pouring through original records. There were a lot of reports that the school would make. So the the men who ran the school reported straight to the governor for most of its history and its early history when, when these deaths were occurring. And they would write reports which would often leave out the number of deaths or it would uh, reduce the number. So they weren't always accurate. But we tried to take all of these different lines of information and cross-reference them in order to fill in gaps and see what was accurate. And then we did the field work. So we did ground penetrating radar and ultimately um, dug what's called test trenches where we basically are digging shallow trenches to look at the soil to confirm what the remote sensing tells us. We're not digging into a burial to, we don't disturb the remains themselves, but by t- looking at that topsoil, you can verify, okay, this is a burial and not, you know, buried trash or some, uh, something else, right? Because basically what GPR shows you is like, there's an anomaly and it gives you this size and shape and depth and you have to interpret that. So of course, when we come out with the re- results, we have 50 burials, People say, well, it's your interpretation. It's just garbage or buried roots, mules. Sorry. or <laughs> Yeah, a <laughs> yes, buried
0: roots. mule or something. Yeah. <laughs> something like that, yeah. Yeah, so at that point then, did you have to get permission to actually excavate what were, you believed, graves?
1: We did, and so we asked on behalf of the family. We tried to go through the medical examiner and a court order, an exhumation order first. That seemed... Most logical, since these are um, unmarked burials, it falls under that purview. Local authorities, uh, law enforcement, uh, and the the medical examiner really, who answers to the county commissioners. So local government said no, and so wait,
0: wait, back (laughs) up. Local government said no, right? So the reaction of local government and the locals there was not very. Friendly to this investigation? No, they fought very hard to
1: prohibit it and then put a lot of pressure, you know, via state politics and on, back
0: onto the university
1: to get us to stop.
0: Wow, let's talk about that. So um, I imagine that this was like any small town. It's Mariana, right? Mariana, yeah. Florida. Uh, you know, many, many years ago, I had a client, a federal drug client who was. Uh, detained in the Mariana Jail, that county jail there, mm-hmm. um, because we don't have a federal detention center here in uh, in this middle district of Florida region. And we, I went up there to see him, and the sheriff's wife was had the contract to cook for all the jail inmates and I was like <laughs> wow this is not a big city anymore you know what I mean it was very right. uh everybody was on a first name basis in the jail the white, the sheriff's wife was cooking the meals it was you know very right. kind of um Mayberry-ish actually <laughs> you know right. and um and I imagine that a lot of local people were employed with the school and or their family members were employed with the school and maybe they were concerned about your investigation and what it might reveal
1: yeah that's absolutely true so the the school had been the biggest employer for the past 111 years it was shut down in 2011 which resulted in several hundred jobs lost people were angry about that um and then the Many of the same families and same people had run the school for generations. And so when you're going back, and even though we're talking about historic events, um, you know I think they felt that it was a tarnish to their reputation or their, their legacy. And they, very, they had a narrative of what this institution was, and they really stuck to it very strongly. And you what was
0: that narrative?
1: That it was um, that these you know these weren't students or children they were inmates they were convicted of crimes sent there for punishment and that they were um, you know punished but given opportunities for job training and education
0: and uh, that it was you know more helpful than harmful. But over the years, didn't the state um, make more and more? Um, offenses like dependency type offenses, juvenile offenses, uh, available to judges to send kids, young men to this, to this school. I want, I, you know, I'm putting school in air quotes. We're on the radio, right. but you know, I'm putting school in air quotes because it doesn't seem uh, very much like a school. It seems more like a prison, a juvenile right. detention center. Um, But weren't they increasing the number of things, number of reasons that um, a juvenile judge could send somebody to the school?
1: They did early on. And we we found records of that where the leaders of the school would basically lobby the governor and the legislator to change the laws to to bring in more kids. And they would say, we don't have enough labor here to bring in the crop. We don't have enough um, kids. And so they wanted control over the length of sentence when kids would get paroled. Um, And it went, it was really, you know, it was really set up to get children out of the convict lease system. Because at the time, uh, you know, Florida didn't really have prisons. They had a convict labor program. And so it was meant to take kids out. It was set up by people who ran convict lease program in North Florida, and and quickly became that for the first 13, 14 years of school didn't have books or, or teachers. So I think that you know tells yeah. you
0: what what it was intended it was to about. be.
1: And so you do see um, things that are non criminal offenses now they could be sentenced. So truancy, um, incorrigibility. That's how you get five year olds, <laughs> you know, five and six year olds sentenced by a judge for incorrigibility. Wow. Um, And um, so, you know, you do see that shift and you see it reflects a time when there's, you know, a lot of the transportation laws, vagabond laws, where the same thing was happening to increase the number of men put into the convict lease system to meet that labor demand as well. And so you also then see a disparity in numbers in terms of white and black and who's sent there. The school was segregated for its first, you know, 65 years. Um, but it was two almost identical campuses that paralleled one another.
0: A white campus and a black campus? That's correct. Wow. We're, we're talking with uh, noted forensic anthropologist, Aaron Kimmerley. Um, and if you'd like to join our conversation please give us a call at 813-239-9663 you can email us at dj at wmnf.org or you can text us at 813-443-0885 on wmnf's midpoint um i have a text message here from somebody who did not leave a name who says i did nine months in dozier well whoever you are listener uh give us a call and uh tell us about your experiences there i know aaron would probably very much like to to hear about your own experiences and we would too so i'm going to urge you to give us a call um and and talk to us about it at 813-239-9663 um hopefully we will hear from our uh guy uh in the near future um i noted that uh like last year maybe there was a judge in i think it was either Pennsylvania or Delaware who was convicted uh for taking bribes for sending kids to a similar kind of juvenile detention facility in his county where uh, they were basically making money off um you know it was a privately run facility and every time they sent a kid to the facility the facility would get paid by the state for, you know, housing and room and board and whatever f- services they s- so called provided. Um, and this judge got convicted for sending, you know, sending kids that should not have been sent there um, and got kickbacks from the private facility. And um, it's interesting that um, it, it, in your investigation of the Dozier School, it seems like. Something similar may have been going on there with the politics and the way that uh, these offenses were increased to increase the population at the school and um, you know to to basically keep it running, right? Um, yeah, and, it's possible. And to avoid investigations too. I mean, I can I, I would imagine that over a hundred and eleven years, there were other families who came forward and said what happened to my kid? He's missing. Right. And, and investigations didn't happen, you know, at least not full investigations until apparently, what, the 2005, 2006... Uh,
1: well, I would say there, there were investigations like even, you know, 19, it opens in 1900. By 1901, 1902, the, legislator, the legislature is getting reports back about deplorable conditions, children are chained to the walls, they're malnourished, um, you know, brutal beatings. And you see that year after year after year. There's congressional hearings um, in the 1980s, the federal government took it over. Uh, for a period of time because of uh, children were, you know, hogtied, left in isolation for Goodness. months. Um, one boy was found, you know, eating, a, you know, had been in isolation for over a month. He didn't even know how long he'd been in there and was uh, eating a light bulb. So oh. all it always, you know, came out. And at times there would be good investigative, like, journalists work and, you know, make national headlines, certainly statewide headlines. But it's like the culture never changed, the people never changed. They would change the name of the school, um, say that they're doing reform, issue a lot of press releases. You know, the, the school had a very man- well-managed you know, uh, narrative that they put out. And I think that's what we ran up against when we were doing our work is the same, same narrative that they've been uh, you know, using for so long.
0: Wow. Well, we have an email here from David who says that a good friend of mine grew up in Jackson County. That's the county where the school is, right? Correct. And, uh, and David says, a good friend of mine grew up in Jackson County, and she told me that many locals there are in denial about how bad conditions were at the Dozier School for Boys. I think it would make for a really interesting social anthropology study of Jackson County to understand the motivations and reasons for this denial. I think it's worth noting how Jackson County is still kind of an old school southern town, more like Alabama than Florida. And David also asks, is Aaron aware that part of the Dozier property is being paved over for a new business park? I think it's kind of shameful since this is hallowed sacred ground. I think they're paving over the graves of those poor boys. Is that correct? He wants to know.
1: Well, I know you know a lot of the pushback also when we were doing this work was they had big plans to develop this land once the school was closed, right? To sell and develop and bring in different businesses. So that was suspended until our work was done. Um, and now I know they're proceeding with it. The remains... That we could identify were returned to families. Those that weren't identified were largely buried in a cemetery in Tallahassee, with the exception of seven individuals who died in a fire. It was a dormitory fire. And those remains had become commingled, what we call commingled. They were basically mixed together because of the fire. And even though they had been buried in seven coffins, the bones
0: didn't match. Yeah, they, oh, they wow. crossed.
1: They crossed them, wow. And so it was really difficult, almost basically impossible to separate them, to give to the families. We had s- several families from uh from those individuals. And they wanted them reburied in Tallahassee as well, but one local woman um want, you know, wanted them to be in Mariana. So those seven are reburied in Mariana and uh I think that in that space should be protected. They have yet to put markers, and uh, you know, both individual and any sort of site marker.
0: Is it um, is it on the property that the school was on, or is it a different location?
1: It is this former school property. It's basically behind that jail you mentioned, oh. and you would have to take a field road. It's not like on the main road. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't. You would never know it's there unless you know it's there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, We have a a text message from Karen in Dunedin who says, I had a friend from school there in the 1970s. We rode up to see him, but we weren't allowed in. None of us ever thought it was a school. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for that, Karen. Um, And we have uh, a message from Bubba who says, one thing about Dozier that surprised me was how long it stayed open. So much cruelty, very sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It did 111 years of this.
1: Right. And I think when the when the men who came forward in 2005 did that, I think it was because they had kind of, you know, you, you have the internet now, right? And so they were like, well, what happened to that place? And they were shocked to see that it was still open. They had figured, oh, that must have closed a long time ago. And I think that was in part what really fueled them to organize and come forward because they thought, how can this still be happening?
0: Um we are talking with Erin Kimberly the noted forensic anthropologist from USF, about her investigation into what happened uh, with respect to all these unmarked... Uh, or marked graves of um, mysterious uh, skeletons at the Dozier School for Boys. Um, if you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at or you can text us at 813-443-0885. Uh, let's talk about your book, Erin. Um, your book uh, is... Uh, Newly published? Well, I guess last year, right? Oh, this year. Uh, this year. Just oh, June. Ju- yep. Oh, just June mm-hmm. this year. Okay. Well, then, very new. Um, let's talk about the book, which is called "We Carry Their Bones: The Search for Justice at the Dozier School for Boys." Um, tell us how the book come about.
1: Uh, well, that was uh, something I had, you know, thought about for a while, and but really stepped away from from the school and the project for a couple of years and wanted an opportunity, I think, to share a lot of the research and the history uh, that we had found out and uncovered, but also pull it all together. A lot of... We tried very hard through our whole investigation to be public, to be transparent, to share information as, as it was happening. But when you kind of step back and put it all together, it tells the whole story and so fills in a lot of gaps I think people that maybe didn't realize or didn't know at the time so that was the idea behind it was to kind of pull it all together and, and write it in a, a narrative form that would sort of tell the story of what, what happened and also what we did to try to figure out what happened since it was such a challenge
0: I, I know that in uh, in doing some research for having you on the show and looking at, at, at the book and you know reading parts of the book and reading a lot of the reviews of the book and interviews with you I noticed that it seemed like one of the motivations that you had for writing the book too was to place this in the context of, of, of justice and the idea of seeking justice and um, and maybe even criminal justice reform in terms of you know how some of these young men got to the Dozier school and um I wanted to you know ask you more about that did you uh, that was my sense mm-hmm. as an outsider from just learning about what your work there was um was that something that you intended?
1: Thank you yes, actually it is because you know i always say I'm a you know have a lot of faith and belief in the system like in the justice system like it can work so well for you know it doesn't always work well but it can and so it's like that potential right and that that um, bringing in you know access where people don't have it I think is what's so important so that it does work well for everyone what happened with when we tried to get permission to the, to do the excavation is we were in between these worlds where it's not a criminal investigation If it had been, if it had been, you know, if the police there had said, we're going to do an investigation, it would have been easy. Now the system's open and we can make it work. But that was closed because it's historic. Okay, but it's not so historic
0: that it's well an murder. There's project. no statute of limitations <laughs> right. on murder, right? Right. Um, but I guess in the beginning, you had no probable cause basis to believe that any of these bodies were the bodies of murder victims, right? So, okay. and you had a sheriff that was not predisposed to open an investigation into whether right. or not that was accurate, whether that was true, right? And
1: the Potential, you know, individuals responsible were deceased, and that was, the, you know, that was the other factor. Or the statute of limitations ran out when it came to things like sexual abuse or mm-hmm. um, other types of abuse. It was, you know, so there's just all these things that were sort of against both the, you know, the men who had been there and wanted justice, and then their families. And and so it was, you know, I think the problem that comes up whenever you have a historic justice issue, all kinds of civil rights investigations, um, what's happening now with the Indian residential schools. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's over 400 schools, not that different from Dozier. And, you know, the Native community is, is going through all of this now for the first time. Um, we saw it with the mother-baby homes in Ireland. So I think, you know, I think there's a lot of
0: examples of sort of history. Yeah, the Magdalen laundries, right, in Ireland. And the laundries, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Very similar. It's interesting. We have a question from one of our listeners who says, did anyone ever get indicted for child abuse uh, for their Dozier cruelty? And how about racial considerations? Were there more black boys abused there than white kids? So um, no
1: one was ever um, indicted or charged with anything criminal. The closest, I would say, is um, in the 1960s, three men employees were terminated the official reason that they were terminated was at the time homosexuality with the boys which wow they put that in the records they did because it was part of the john's committee oh yes uh-huh. and so they were there to investigate that um and those men were were released for that of course today we know that is if that had happened it was predatory and you yeah. know spe- reflects a lot of the sexual abuse that men had talked about um but everything else, either you know, the statute of limitations had passed, the you know, potential bad guy suspect was deceased, or it just fell in between
0: these systems. We have a call from Mark from Sarasota who says he used to live in Mariana. Mark, you're on the air. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for taking my call. Let me get you off speakerphone. So. Uh, yeah, I just um, would like to say um, that um, my... Uh, having lived in Mariana, I, I, I knew several people who actually worked at the, at the, at the Dozier School. I, I knew several people who were actually inmates at the school, too, uh, in their youth. Um, first, I guess I would like to say my grandfather, uh, who was a doctor in the, in the 30s uh, in Mariana, he did say that some awful things were happening out there at the R.C. Dozier School for Boys, but I never heard any elaboration on that. And obviously, obviously, some horrible things happened. But I think it's worthwhile to take a look at the, the human element involved in this. And uh, one thing we should consider is that you know, a lot of the inmates at the Arthur J. School were the worst of the worst. I mean, we're talking about the eight-year-old kids who, who had killed people, right, or in, in, and, and, and stabbed, you know, the other children. So uh, that's one part of it. And the other thing is is that um, I, even when I was there in the in the in the '90s uh, in Mariana, there were people who would get jobs at the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys. And as, as, as it was commonly known in, in Jackson County, what it was, uh, getting a job at that school was kind of like a second job for farmers. Uh, because what the state of Florida does, and they do this routinely today, they place uh, big state facilities like Sunland for the mentally challenged or prisons throughout the state in rural counties, as a way to supplement the income in rural counties for, for, for people who are, you know, because these rural counties are often deprived of income, especially with the, the decline in agriculture in, in the late 1900s. And so, what I'm guessing what I'm trying to say is that a lot of the people who are called upon to staff at the Arthur Gozier School for Boys were not trained psychologists. You know, they had, and matter of fact, they probably didn't have a college degree at all. They weren't trained in anything like corrections. They were just people who took it on as a second job. So,
0: good point. I think, I think you know
2: that combined with the state of Florida being you know sort of notoriously chintzy on these things. I mean, they establish the center, and as long as the centers are up and running, they don't really invest heavily in them. I think that it, there is it's a little bit of a recipe for disaster in terms of in terms of the oversight of these boys. I think it could have been much more professionally done. Okay, so I think there's a feeling on the on the state's part not to provide the funding for it.
0: Right. Okay, you make some really good points. Thank you for sharing your 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 own uh, connection to the Dozier School. I appreciate the information, Erin. What do you think about um, what Mark said? It makes sense to me about that. You know that these were people who were untrained and uh, you yeah,
1: know. Yeah, and you see that like like I said from the beginning, from the from the days it opened, um, it's run by uh, you know local. Uh, farmers and business leaders who ran the convict lease, lease system, um, and there, you know, really wasn't a, a teacher there for the first 14 years, and you see that through today. Um, Carol Marvin Miller has been continuing, and colleagues, you know, to do really um, great investigative work in Miami, looking at juvenile centers today, and they find the same thing, you know, really underplay- underpaid, um, untrained, you know, staff, and and so I think that does continue to be a really important issue and and part of the problem. Um, I think also what he mentioned in terms of, you know, that sort of worldview is, you know, fundamental in sort of criminology and the criminal justice system is what is your perspective and what is the policy in terms of, uh, you know, reform, punishment, rehabilitation. I mean, if an eight year old does commit a murder, you know, how how do we as society deal with that? Is it months of isolation, severe punishment, hope for the best, or you know, or, or are there other ways in which we um, try and work with that individual and 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 help them or rehabilitate them or you know?
0: It, right, it, yeah. In the nineteen nineties, I you know there was a big shift in the world of criminal justice. I used to be a criminal defense attorney, and you know we went from um, you know basically a reform mindset you know investing in people in prison so that they could get education they could be trained in in trades they could you know uh, have uh, more drug and alcohol rehab they could have mental health counseling and you know it, it it went with this trend toward the privatization of incarceration where it became a profit center for these corporations and you know all of the uh, so, and, and the the governments you know went along with all of a sudden, changing to a more retributive kind of system where people, you know, you're just there to be warehoused. You know, if you committed a crime, you don't deserve anything but, you know, punishment, basically. Right. Um. And so, the, you know, that's a that's a question that America has not adequately addressed. Um. You know, how we deal with people who. Uh, don't fit into the the social fabric, right. and and you know commit crimes, and not just crimes of violence, but any kind of crime. Right. We haven't really, we haven't, we still haven't figured that out. Um,
1: yeah, and with a growing prison population, I think it's a really important topic, and one that, you know, if there was more discussion of restorative justice type initiatives, might help with that because it's. Uh, you know, really speaks to not just the victims, but also the the perpetrators in the community.
0: I have a I have a listener, John from Sarasota, who says he has some information about Mariana. Okay, John, uh, yes, cut ma'am. right to it, since the time is getting short here. You with us? Are you on the air? I'm
3: on the radio. Or do I tell you?
0: Yeah, you're on the air.
3: Oh yes, ma'am. Uh, no, I just got some stories about Jackson County in the '80s and '90s. We used to uh, we used to go up there and hunt. There was a uh, uh, management area right on Lake Seminole. It was called Appalachia, and those people up there from Jackson County, because that was back when when the uh, the county you were from was on your tag, and they would they would see those tags and they would turn around and walk away, and there would be like thirty of them. They had this little building on on the management area. That, that all the locals would be in there talking in the morning, and as soon as you walked through that door, they would shut up.
0: Well, what, what do I'm you think saying. that has to do with the Dozier School? You think those were employees of the Dozier School? <laughs> no,
3: it's those people in that area. If
0: you've ever
3: been up there...
0: Oh, you just are say. saying something about the residents of Mariana.
3: Oh, yeah. If you weren't from Jackson County, you might as well have been from Mars.
0: Oh, I see. I see. So that's just your perception of of, of uh, it being a very insular community, a very closed community.
3: Yeah. yeah I see. Yeah. You can talk to everybody I went up there with. They would tell you the same story. Uh-huh. So, story, I've got one other short story for you. Chattahoochee's up there, too, the mental institution, right?
0: Right.
3: Okay, well, there's a pizza hut right across the road from it. And we went up here one time. We were up there hunting. And we went in the Pizza Hut, and we said, well, we'll have a pitcher of beer. And (laughs) they said, we don't serve beer. And we go, well, why is that? Because they let people out from the mental institution on day passes. They would go into the Pizza Hut and drink, and then when they went back into the mental institution, they couldn't control them. Okay. They quit selling alcohol.
0: <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that, uh, that information with us about your experiences in Mariana. We appreciate it, Might John. Thanks a way. lot. So, uh, okay. Well, there you go. Um, I, it does seem to me that, you know, some of these smaller rural counties, it is, you know, more of an insular, closed community. I mean, there isn't a lot of contact with, you know, People from the outside world, there's very few reasons to go there, I guess. And so, you know, there are people who are, uh, you know, kind of closed up.
1: Yeah,
0: so yeah. we're talking with Erin Kimberly, who's recently published a book called "We Carry Their Bones: The Search for Justice at the Dozier School for Boys." It was just published by HarperCollins, and we're happy to have her here with us. Um, before we move on, uh, move on, Erin. I did want to ask you: you have a new podcast now, is that right? With Ben, we've been we've been working
1: on it. Yeah, it uh, hasn't been released yet, but we've okay. been doing all the. What's it going to be about? Well, we have this idea, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of interest in forensics and cold case, and that's my passion. Uh, but what what's uh, usually gets discussed, you know, are the, the stories, individual stories and cases, but less about the issues and sort of um, challenges behind the scenes, if you will. So it's a little bit of a look inside investigations and inside that world in terms of what are the... Um, challenges and uh, with the idea that, you know, maybe ultimately some of those things can can change and most people don't realize the cold case problem is... Two hundred seventy thousand unsolved murders in this country just since just since nineteen eighty when people started counting, and it's growing. You know, cities like Philly have a thirty two percent
0: clearance rate right now for homicide. Um, And I noticed somewhere a statistic that said forty percent of the missing persons um, last year were people of color.
1: They tend to be um, definitely from marginalized groups: women, people of color. people with mental
0: health issues, substance abuse issues. And I also wanted to ask you about this project you have called The Art of Forensics. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. What is that? So that is
1: uh, part of this cold case initiative we've been doing where we go back and reanalyze cases, you know, decades old, basically work them as if it, you know, from day one and try and uh, get, these are, these are not just homicides, but it's where the victim is unknown so they're very challenging cases, and we've really tried to focus on females that are, you know, often murdered and dumped because they're the hardest cases to solve, and they tend to get, you know, they're at the bottom of the queue. So we um, reanalyze everything if and work closely with the detectives, resubmit DNA, whatever whatever evidence might be there and then it ends with a facial reconstruction so we can hopefully identify the victim and do you do
0: that like physically with clay or do you do that with computer animation or how's the facial reconstruction done so, in our lab, we
1: use um, computerized methods. We've done clay in the past just to bring in artists and try and get the you know public to pay attention. The truth is that every time we do this, we put these stories out; cases get solved. Wow! And so that's it's really about you know reaching the right person who might know who this person is. So
0: you're going to have another exhibit of the art of forensics, and you're going to put these mysterious faces out to the world and ask people to come see them and see if they can identify them. That's what we do, yep. And we're gonna do that again in August, uh the weekend of the 27th.
1: And where where is this? That'll be at the vault in downtown Tampa.
0: At the vault in downtown Tampa. So if there's any missing people in your life, go to the vault on the weekend of August 27th and 28th and check out this art of forensics uh, exhibit and, and see if you can help solve them. And I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about is um, there's a nationwide database to help solve missing person cases. Um, and can you give us briefly a, a notion of the sense of getting people to voluntarily submit family DNA or dental records um, or anything that, that uh, might help law enforcement right. or someone like you find ide- and identify a missing person?
1: Yeah, there's um, a pr- the program is called NamUs, namus.org. It's run through the federal government. It's um, a great resource because families and um, as well as practitioners and law enforcement have access to it. In the past, families didn't ever have access to that kind of information. So it's a big step in helping to make that information available. But it is voluntary and even most law enforcement and medical examiner agencies don't use it. So one thing to do is get your local agencies to use it. But if there is anyone missing in your family um, to to make that report, because for the 40,000 unidentified people in this country, they're basically not in that system. If they were, we would be able to make
0: matches and, and find them. All right. now I want to uh, just apologize to the listeners who are hanging on the phone here who waited until the last possible moment to call in, um, as usually happens on the show, because I will not be able to get to your calls. Please call in earlier during the show, next show that we do, where you have questions and comments. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and I'm sorry that we can't fit you in right now. But I do want to thank my guest, Erin Kimmerly, for joining us today to talk about her work as a forensic anthropologist and her new book, We Carry Their Bones, about her investigation at the Notorious Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida. If you joined us late in the show, please feel free to go back and listen on demand from the Midpoint archives at WMNF.org slash midpoint, or you can find us at WMNF Midpoint wherever you get your podcast. I also want to thank our WMNF volunteers who make the show go, Jessica Green on the soundboard and Barbara Fling who answered phones for us. And as always, I thank you the WMNF listeners for your interest and support of Midpoint. If you enjoyed the show then support us. Uh, please stay tuned for Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss up next. WMNF Tampa.